Hello, my name is Hugo Vera, and I am a student majoring in criminal justice with a minor in Spanish. My goal is to attend law school and then become a prosecutor. I am currently attending CSULA as an undergrad. In this podcast, I will focus on the criminal justice system and the law. I will talk and analyze famous court cases along with the concepts of criminal law, included but not limited to elements of the different types of crime. Welcome to my podcast, Understanding Basic Criminal Law. Welcome to episode 7 of Understanding Basic Criminal Law. Before we begin, I would like to give thanks to everyone who is still working during this ongoing pandemic. The coronavirus pandemic is still going on, so wear your mask and respect the rules of social distancing. You should avoid gathering with more than 15 people, and if you are gathering or going out, make sure you are socially distant and wearing your mask. Last week, after numerous days of counting electoral votes, the United States has elected a new president and vice president. Mr. Joe Biden and our first biracial female vice president, Mrs. Kamala Harris. I'm certain that the new president and vice president will shift our nation towards a brighter future. On the last episode of Understanding Basic Criminal Law, I discussed some of the criminal court procedures, preliminary trial, plea bargaining, and the trial itself. In today's special episode of Understanding Basic Criminal Law, I discuss the history and importance of the insanity plea and the link with the McNaughton Rule. The historical roots of the McNaughton Rule date back to 1843. So sit back because Mr. Vera is about to give a history lesson on the McNaughton Rule. The McNaughton Rule on criminal insanity is named for Daniel McNaughton who, in 1843, tried to kill England's Prime Minister, Sir Robert Peel. McNaughton thought Peel wanted to kill him, so he tried to shoot Peel, but instead shot and killed Peel's secretary, Edward Drummond. Medical experts testified that McNaughton was psychotic and McNaughton was found not guilty by reason of insanity. According to the legal dictionary, in the time of the committing of the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason from a disease of the mind, as to not know the nature and quality of the act he was doing or if he didn't know it, and if that he did not know what he was doing was actually wrong. And voila, the insanity defense was created. The term insanity comes from the word insane. Insane means to be in a state of mind which prevents normal perception, behavior, or social interaction, or that seriously mentally ill. Mental illness is a very serious topic. If you are struggling with mental illness, I want you to know that you are not alone because there are many national hotlines to help and provide the support you need. Talk to someone before it's too late and sometimes mental illness isn't always noticeable so check up on your close friends and family members. Especially amidst the pandemic, most of our mental health might be declining with so much going on around us. Always remember you are never alone and to love yourself and take proper care of your health both physically and mentally. Now that we discussed mental health and some resources, we can dive into the insanity defense. According to the Cornell University Legal Information Institute, insanity defense is a defense that a defendant can plead in a criminal trial. In an insanity defense, the defendant admits the action but asserts a lack of culpability based on mental illness. You might be asking yourself, how can a person admit the guilt but can't be held responsible for it? It is due to the presence of mental illness. You see, there are four types of insanity defense. 1. McNaughton 2. Irresistible Impulse 3. Substantial Capacity and 4. Durham Rule 
irresistible impulse insanity defense is the same as a McNaughton. The focus is on the defendant's awareness or the cognition of the crime and the ability to control his or her conduct. The substantial capacities test is part of the model penal code. You guys remember the good old model penal code from episode 1, right? Well, if you don't, then I will jog your memory. According to the legal dictionary, the model penal code is a set of criminal law principles and guidelines issued in 1962 by the American Law Institute, following more than a decade of effort. The code is an attempt to rationalize criminal law in relation to modern society and to establish a logical framework for defining offenses and a consistent body of general principles on such matters as criminal intent and the liability of accomplices. These guidelines assist the law in understanding the types of offenses that have been outlined and bound by president or previously ruled cases. For the substantial capacity test, Model Penal Code Section 4.01 states, A person is not responsible for criminal conduct if at the time of such conduct, as a result of mental disease or defect, he or she lacks substantial capacity either to appreciate the criminality or wrongfulness of his or her conduct to conform his or her conduct to the requirements of the law. People given the substantial capacity test can't distinguish from right or wrong. As adults, many of us know what is considered to be morally right and wrong. Kids learn it through the years as their brains develop further with time. The defendants given the substantial capacity test range from ages of 25 through 40. These are adults but their brains are not functioning properly or normally, which is why a person can't be charged for a crime if he or she didn't know what they were engaging in was considered to be wrong. The law can hold these people accountable for the crime if the defendants didn't even know what they did was considered to be wrong. The last insanity defense is a Durham insanity defense. The historical significance for Durham is worth mentioning. As stated by criminalfinelaw.com, the origins of the Durham insanity rule came from Durham versus the United States. This rule was first adopted by New Hampshire in 1871. However, it became more widespread after a 1954 U.S. Court of Appeals decision in which the court found the existing test for legal insanity inadequate. At the time, insanity was either based on the inability to know right from wrong or the inability to control impulses. Also, both tests required a clinical diagnosis of insanity. So the court decided that this approach failed to account for certain mentally defective individuals charged with crimes, suggesting the following test instead. The question will be simply whether the accused acted because of a mental disorder and not whether he or she displayed particular symptoms which medical science has long recognized do not necessarily or even typically accompany even the most serious mental disorder. The Durham Insanity Defense, or the Durham Rule, is open to proximate causation. Proximate cause is an event sufficiently related to an injury that the courts deem the event to be one of the cause of the injury. There are two types of causation in law. 1. Cause in fact, and 2. Proximate cause. Two elements are explored in the insanity defense. First, the defendant must have a mental defect. Second, they must possess proximate cause. The mental defect caused the person to commit such a crime. All these insanity defenses are interpreted differently depending on the jurisdiction, state, county, or court you are in. Every one of these insanity defenses derive from famous statutes from different states. This means one insanity defense can be applied in one state and not in the other. Remember there are different interpretations of the law. So let's go over some examples of the insanity defenses. 
the Durham Insanity Defense is the most complicated one to understand, so let's begin with this one. In the University of Minnesota, Chapter 5 of the Criminal Law Book, titled Criminal Defenses Part 1, they provide a simple example to comprehend. Ariana has been diagnosed with paranoia. Most psychiatric experts agree that individuals afflicted with paranoia unreasonably believe that the human population is out to get him or her. Ariana works under the direct supervision of Nora, who has a physical condition called walleye. Nora's walleye makes it appear that she is looking to the side when she addresses people. Ariana gradually becomes convinced that Nora is communicating secret messages to their co-workers when she is speaking to Ariana. Ariana is genuinely frightened that Nora is telling their co-workers to kill her and she decides she needs to defend herself. Ariana brings a gun to work one day and when Nora begins talking to her about her tendency to take over long lunches, Ariana pulls the gun out of her cubicle, shoots and kills Nora. It is evident Ariana has a mental defect, paranoia. Ariana can probably produce evidence, like a psychiatric expert testimony, that her paranoia caused or produced her criminal conduct, which was, in fact, shooting Nora. This is a reasonable explanation for why Ariana killed Nora. It was her paranoia leading her to believe they were out to get her. If Ariana did not have any mental defect, then she would be convicted of first-degree murder. Remember, willful, premeditated, and deliberate. This example of paranoia has similarities to the Daniel McNaughton case first talked about. This next case was given by my professor in my Concepts of Criminal Law class at CSULA. Now, this case is very interesting and I was shocked by the actual decision. Mola vs. State is a case about the diminished capacity. As stated by California Penal Code, Section 25, the defense of diminished capacity in a criminal action, as well as any juvenile court proceeding, a person's intoxication, trauma, mental illness, disease, or defect shall not be admissible to show or negate the capacity to form the particular purpose, intent, motive, malice, or other mental state required for him or her to be charged with the crime. This, in essence, is Penal Code 25, commonly referred to as the insanity plea. The defendant Michael L. Moeller was convicted of murdering an old lady named Ethel Cummins. Michael testified he believed Cummins was turning into a witch. So he went and twisted her head, resulting in murder. Murder is the unlawful premeditated killing of one being by another. In the appellate's case, it is revealed that Michael suffered from schizophrenia, which caused him to get brief hallucinations and delusions. When Nina and Neil came to discover what Michael had done, they found him standing and said, I didn't mean to do it. She was turning into a witch. For the defendant to be under the insanity defense, he or she must not have any knowledge of the crime being committed. According to the Free Dictionary, the insanity defense is asserted by an accused in a criminal prosecution to avoid liability for the commission of a crime because at the same time of the crime, the person did not appreciate the nature or quality or wrongfulness of the act. The defendant, Michael, seemed as if he did appreciate the act because he thought that by killing Cummins, he was getting rid of the evil witch he claimed he saw. He saw it as a way to protect himself from her supposed witchcraft. The defendant says he never wanted to kill her, but he saw her turning into a witch, so he felt she must be killed. Moeller did indeed have a schizophrenic, unpredictable, hallucinogenic episode at the time of the crime. But, throughout the trial, he remained consistent and strongly affirmed Cummins was a witch. The defendant during the trial never actually denied killing Cummins. 
This is key evidence for the insanity plea. The defendant knew he had murdered Cummins, or what he saw was a witch. Sherry Good, who gave Muller the injection, testified and said Muller was asked a series of questions regarding suicidal or homicidal thoughts. The defendant appeared normal during each of his visits to LifeSpring. The medical experts were unable to detect any signs of abnormality in the defendant. The defendant was evaluated by medical professionals, and even they could not detect something was going on inside the defendant's mind. Many witnesses testified about Moeller's demeanor both before and after the murder. Both Nina and Neil testified he behaved normally before the crime. The most important piece of evidence is when the police interrogated him about the crime. Captain Stephen, who had known the defendant for 12 years, said Moeller seemed pretty normal after the, the attack. If Moeller was insane at the time of the crime, how come he appeared to be as if he did nothing wrong? Another officer testified Moeller's demeanor remained calm while Moeller told him about how he killed Cummins. Moeller knew that he was murdering Ethel Cummins, but he felt that what appeared to be a witch was going to attack or kill him. He remained calm when he spoke to the police because he probably felt he was a hero for murdering Cummins. If he was showing any signs of panic or signs of mental incompetence, he would have been considered to be insane. However, he appeared to be normal and not insane, which is why the court was justified in disregarding psychiatric testimony. The court brought up an example summing up why they convicted him of murder and why the insanity defense was inapplicable. In accordance with criminalfinelaw.com, the defendant's behavior was more indicative of his actual mental health at the time of the killing than medical examinations. The maneuver in which he carried himself before and after the attack is what the jury decided they should convict the defendant for murder. The big question arising from cases like these is how can one prove insanity? Sanity is very difficult to prove given the examples I have provided and the outside resources I cited from. As stated by University of Minnesota Criminal Law Book, there is generally a presumption that criminal defendants are sane, just as there is a presumption that they are innocent. Therefore, at a minimum, a defendant claiming insanity must produce evidence that rebuts this presumption. Some states require the prosecution to thereafter prove sanity before a reasonable doubt or to a preponderance of the evidence. Basically, you need enough evidence to prove a defendant is insane, just as you need enough evidence to prove a defendant is sane. Criminal trials are different in every state. The McNaughton Rule, Irresistible Impulse, Substantial Capacity Test, and Durham are all different insanity defenses. These insanity defenses include many interwoven elements distinguishing them from each other. In the next episode, I talk about a very controversial topic, the death penalty. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. This podcast was produced and edited by Gilbert Molinet. If you would like to donate or provide feedback, my email is verahugo8 at gmail.com. If you enjoy listening to Understanding Basic Criminal Law, give us a rating at Anchor FM, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and any other platform. This will really help us get discovered and grow.